0: This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org, and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. We're going to get started. We're going to do
1: some introductions of our panelists. Uh, going to let them self-introduce. Uh, tell you a little bit about themselves, uh, then we're going to hear from them for a little bit and then go into a Q&A questions round. So let's start over here with Donna.
2: Hi, everybody. Can you all hear me? Good, the microphone's working. Um, thank you all for coming. My name is Donna Murch. I'm an associate professor of history at Rutgers University. I am chapter president of the Rutgers AUP AFT, and I also work with this um, organizing project called Million Dollar Hoods at UCLA.
3: Hi everyone, my name is Gabe Winant. Uh I am an assistant professor at University of Chicago here in town. I'm a labor historian. Um, I am a former member and organizer with Unite Here and I'm currently a volunteer organizer with the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee. Oh,
4: hello. Hi, uh, my name is Dan Denver, I am the host of a podcast called The Dig, and in my organizing life, thank you, uh, in my organizing life I uh, help lead an organization in Rhode Island called Reclaim Rhode Island.
1: Hi, uh, my name is Mia Inoue. I am an assistant professor at Bard College um, in New York. Um, I write, I'm a political theorist, I write about theories of personal and social transformation um, in the 20th century U.S. Labor and civil rights movement, organizing traditions, um, and uh, I am a member of the of DSA's National Political Education Committee, um, and I co-founded an organization with Dan that um, of Reclaim Rhode Island, and I also in the past did some organizing with Gabe. Um, so we'll talk about those experiences. <laughs> Thank you for those introductions. Um, I think we're going to see who wants to start? I have, some,
3: I have some questions. You have some
1: questions, questions. great. Thank you,
3: Well, oh, Thanks everyone for being here. It's very cool to see such a big crowd. Um, so I should say first a word about the kind of conception of this panel. Um, this panel is co-sponsored by N Plus One Magazine. Um, and. Uh, In convening this group of people to talk about this topic, I was thinking about, um, just to kind of introduce our discussion today, I was thinking about the ways that we, you know, have a lot of often quite complex and sophisticated theoretical discourse on the left, and a lot of concrete problems that we're working on every day in our organizing, and uh, in my own experience, and I would guess in lots of our experiences, those are often quite far apart from each other. And there's good reasons for that. Obviously, we don't want to be, you know, knocking on doors, theorizing at people, right? Um, but we we do need to think and about and conceptualize what we're doing, and we also need to inform our concepts and thinking uh, from what we're doing. And I just, in my own, again, in my own experience, I don't think we have enough opportunities for doing that. Um, So that was sort of the idea of this panel. And in particular, I thought it would be a nice fit for the N plus one slot at the socialism conference, because N plus one, if you don't read it, I think it is the magazine that uh, has hosted or published some of the kind of best long form searching, writing about organizing work. Um, Mm -hmm. In particular, I would point you to uh, Nikhil Saval's writing about uh, the Bernie campaign, about Elizabeth, to Elizabeth Stone's writing about the same union that Mia and I were in. Um, <laughs> a wonderful essay called Spade Work. So anyway, that's sort of what we're doing here today. Um, and you know, I have some pretty general questions for my co-panelists about dimensions of of, of that problem. Uh, you know, I'll share my own experiences some too. But obviously, we are hoping that people here will want to participate and share your own experiences and ideas and thoughts about. How to bridge those things which can be very far apart sometimes. Uh, so I have four kind of broad discussion questions and I thought I'll just start with the first one and we'll get to the second one when it feels like time. Um, so to start I was hoping we could discuss the question of strategy. At some level strategy is always rooted in a theory of how the world works, how it might be changed, uh, although that theory might or might not be explicit. Um, But strategy also develops out of the accumulation of movement experience. As we win victories and suffer setbacks, we don't just modify our tactics, we change our analysis, whether or not we are explicit that we're doing so. So I'm curious for the co-panelists about what some of your experiences are uh, that you've had or would point to. I want to encourage people to draw on your own experience or point to examples of things that you have studied or read about or thought a lot about potentially deep in the past. Donna is a wonderful scholar of the Black Panther Party, for example. Um, But anyway, uh, experiences you've had or would point to of strategic analysis evolving in response to practical lessons, moments when uh, struggles on the ground have compelled some kind of deeper theoretical and strategic reflection, and in particular, uh, what you found to be difficult about that process and what you found potentially liberating about moments that fit that description. And I guess, whoever wants to go first.
2: (laughs) It's always hard to go first. (laughs) But you, please. Um, I guess the first thing I want to say is that it's interesting to be on this panel and talking about organizing, because I feel really that I can't even articulate it fully in terms of my own vision, because I do see myself as part of the collective. So, I'll be talking about some of the inflection points in our union, which I participated in, but it's interesting because one of the big differences between organizing and kind of academic work is that academic work is so often rooted in the individual. So, in that sense, I'm going to talk about ideas and visions and strategy that I did not invent, uh, but that I've worked with and been a part of figuring out how to shift and adapt. So, um, that's kind of the 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 standpoint from where i would speak um so i'll give you a little bit of background in order to think about this question of history uh i became active in our union i was always a member from 2004 but i became active in the union leadership after having been recruited (laughs) i was truly recruited (laughs) and that is you know sounds obvious But honestly, this is one of the most important things in building any political organization. And the kinds of skills involved in recruiting and supporting others and the emotional work that's involved in organizing is, I think, in some ways, more questions of commitment and time and organization than it is the elaboration of a logic or theory and that's one of the things that can make it hard organizing in higher education sometimes. I am deeply attached to research I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, and my dream was to stay in some ways in a library or university, but that was not a world that I was born into. And so I am very, um, it's very important to me, but I also feel some disjuncture between the kind of academic production and then trying to organize in higher education, which is not to say that we don't draw on those lessons. But I would say, Our union was founded in 1970, and through much of its history, it oscillated between being a service union and a left union, but it was really transformed after the financial crisis in 2008, when Chris Christie was governor of um, New Jersey, and there was a really vicious attack on all the Rutgers unions, because his strategy was to try to break Rutgers unions first and use those to break the New Jersey public sector unions. So we had the worst contract in recent history, and the union at that time was run by an elite group of distinguished, largely full and distinguished professors, overwhelmingly white and male, and it was a vision of leadership in which you had faculty kind of theorizing and then all the work was done by the staff so i'd say in 2012 2014 we had a group of people that came into the union who were actually an outgrowth of one of the tendencies that sponsored the socialism conference so kind of revolutionary socialists and i'd say a small group of people came together and really helped turn the union and they did this through very conscious recruitment of like-minded people and many of us are lifelong leftists who have been involved in different struggles so i think that a lot of the intellectual formation and the political commitments came they far predated the union leadership but they provided the level of commitment that would make you spend more time on union organizing than you do for the job that you're paid for so the commitment piece is really important and one of the biggest surprises for me is the difficulty of recruiting people who write beautiful powerful works that i love and agree with but that hasn't always translated into the kinds of commitments that are involved in nitty-gritty organizing. Uh, so I guess that would be the first piece. I don't, there are other things I could say. I'd say in the transformation of our union, and one of the things that I thought was implicit in Gabe's question is also that relationship of kind of theorizing and practice and how both what we learn from organizing, but particularly in the case of our union, how we're changed by external Events. And both the election of Trump and the pandemic were key and left pivots in our union. First, with the election of Trump, the level of crisis at a school like Rutgers, where we have enormous numbers of immigrant students, large Muslim populations, black populations from urban New Jersey, this was another crisis. And one of the big things that the union began to do, I'd say two years prior, was to bring in a broader vision of left politics that talked about race, gender, questions of immigration status, and to change the iconography of what the union had meant. We took a black fist with a red pencil on a scarlet-gray background, you know, kind of Soviet constructivism this Black Panther Party. <laughs> and we used that to telescope that the union has changed. And so that was a big period. That's a period in which I was recruited. And that was a big period of the changing over of the executive council. Uh, We want a really substantive contract, which was unprecedented with um, uh created a process for contractual pay equity between the three campuses which have enormous disparities in pay and also for pay equity based on gender so fast forward to 2020 we had a new union leadership led by todd wilson and our initial thought uh union organizing thought then was to work on bargaining for the common bill good and building connections with local communities but the pandemic hit so fast and hard in new jersey where we immediately had layoffs of over 1500 people of the most vulnerable workers and it was out of those conditions that we actually pivoted and started working on wall-to-wall organizing and industrial unionism and how to adapt that. That required an enormous amount of work inside the union because not everyone agreed with this as a vision. And it was also really a diminishment of the people, the senior, majority male, tender track faculty that had led the union. So that pivot was a direct response to the pandemic and it's set us on a path that to me has been the most profound and
4: amazing things that I've been involved with. Um, first, just briefly, as to some of, uh, of Donna's remarks, um, I, I couldn't agree more that recruitment and leadership development is just like the key bread and butter of actual organizing work and like kind of big theory is not necessarily so helpful there, because it's all about building and maintaining these sets of interpersonal relationship and bringing those relationships in to relationship with other relationships in certain ways.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I also want
4: to second just how there is a remarkable divide between kind of like the intellectual and academic world and activist world. It's something that my podcast endeavors to sort of bridge, but in, in Providence, I can think of like one professor at Brown University who's actively involved in Rhode Island politics in any way, shout out to Malco. Uh, but uh, <laughs> there are lots of like, you know, smart left wing professors there, um, but I, you know, it would. And they don't need to be leaders who are not in Rhode Island politics, but it would be great if they got canvas like once a month or once every two months or something. Is that too much to ask? Um, so, the question about strategy I think is really interesting, and I've learned a lot about it the last two years. I came of age on the left in the late 90s as an activist and organizer, and did that until I became kind of an alternative journalist and some sort of stopped organizing from 2007 to, for a while. And then, you know, at some point with Bernie and Trump and the and everything, I was like, okay, I host a socialist podcast, now. I can start organizing again. And I've learned a lot in the last two years since Reclaim Rhode Island was founded. And one, I think, you know, strategy should always be working hypotheses. And you, hypotheses, you shouldn't be afraid to take risks because of the risk of failing. But you also shouldn't be stubborn about um, acknowledging when a strategy has failed and needs to be either replaced with a new strategy or tweaked. In some way, I think like constant self-assessment and reassessment is really important. I think it's often very much um, lacking on the left, unfortunately. Um, and so, one experience I had um, was around how we relate sort of our outside game around legislative campaigns to our inside game. And we had this campaign uh, that was ultimately successful to get Rhode Island's cannabis legalization law amended so that it both automatically expunged criminal past criminal records and made Rhode Island. The first state in the country to set aside uh, uh, a portion, a significant portion of the limited cannabis retail licenses for worker-owned cooperatives. And our theory, based on you know, I think a very common and like generally correct left approach to things, is that if we're gonna do legislative stuff, we need to like kind of like build a movement around it and build like popular power and make the politicians do it. And we sort of tried doing that, we like, canvassed around it. People were interested, it did not generate sort of a massive groundswell of demands for, a, you know, for a just cannabis legalization law. The reason we, we won is like we had a really good inside game legislative strategy with like tight legislative allies um, and uh, also uh, built like the were were part of like the right coalition that brought the right sort of pre-existing power blocks, including UFCW, which has been organizing campus workers, into alignment around a common set of demands, Um, which didn't lead us to say, oh, we don't need an outside game, we're just going to become like, you know, weird insider technocrats. Instead, it actually liberated us to explore like a much more interesting outside game um, as we turned our organization's focus to housing and pushing for the Create Homes Act, which would make Rhode Island the first state in the country with a public state level developer of public of public housing for poor people for working class people and for middle class people to take some like pretty big steps towards making rhode island um more and more like vienna <laughs> um, and that legislation was introduced it has like a lot of like surprisingly like mainstream support in the legislature it did not pass uh, but we have like a solid in it we think it'll pass uh next we think we can get it passed next session we won a 10 million dollar pilot public developer which we think will build like one project our goal is to make it like the nicest sustainable most like beautiful like public housing project that is, will just be a model for what public housing should look like in the 21st century um, but uh, like what that free is up to do uh, and a big, big part of winning this next session will be again aligning pre-existing power blocks namely getting the building traits on board which anyone who's like done a lot of work with labor knows are very powerful but often very hard to get behind. Uh, progressive causes but this legislation would build create a lot of construction jobs so we're in the process of building that relationship anyhow so what about our outside game we were liberated to have an outside game that has nothing particularly directly to do with this legislation but is very much about housing we opened an entire new kind of tenant organizing um, operation and that unlike talking to people on the door about this kind of abstract feeling legislation and trying to explain what a public developer of housing is, that we tar- we decided to target one of the worst landlords in uh, Metro Providence. Um, we think they actually extend out to Worcester, Mass. We're still looking into that, but um, and that has been incredibly successful because these tenants all hate their living conditions and hate their landlord. And um, the challenge is just getting you know them to take move from hating their landlord and wanting better conditions to fighting for them, but that is indeed happening. We have tenant leaders stepping up and partnering with reclaimed leaders. And the bit, the the idea there is um, one, that building tenant power is good in and of itself in terms of those tenants like, transforming their own existence by fighting for the living conditions they deserve, but that ultimately the sort of legislative and policy kind of housing <laughs> ambitions we have for Rhode Island will will, the most our most radical dreams there will only be possible if we if we build um tenant power in a way that's never built in rhode island so actually getting getting away from this kind of more narrowly focused outside game and just kind of doing the inside game for what it is um, you know uh liberated us to have a much more radical interesting um, mass-oriented outside game and that was a big lesson learned
1: um, great, so um, on the, the question of strategy, I think that I've come to think about strategy at two levels of any given campaign. Um, so there's always the campaign itself and whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish or win or change. Um, and then there is the revolution, right? Or like the more fundamental social transformations that you're trying to affect, right? And I think that becoming um, sometimes right becoming um, too narrowly focused on um, the the goal, the immediate goal, um, can actually kind of undermine the the longer term strategy. Um, So that's not a unique insight, but it's something that keeps coming back to me through the different kinds of organizing I've been involved in. Um, And I think that when you do kind of zoom out and and take the bigger picture and think about uh, like, what kind of organizational capacity and, like, capacities for direct action and relationships and visions and demands do we need to build to be prepared for these unpredictable moments, like the summer of 2020, uh, when there is this, like, momentum in the streets and there's the possibility for disruption and for mass action that can actually um, produce the kinds of um, tra- transformations that we need to see and the kind of, that has produced historically the kind of incomplete but partial democratic transformations that we've seen um, in the US. Um, If you think about that question, I think it kind of reorients you towards the day-to-day work, and sometimes takes some of the pressure off of the narrowly conceived wins uh, in a way that makes it possible to maintain organizations and relationships beyond a, a given campaign. Um, and that's something I think about when I think about um, the union that I was a part of. Well, I was in graduate school that you know won some things, but ultimately we we didn't win a contract and we didn't win a majority or a super majority of, of support from the workers. And um, you know, what I think, in my assessment, one of the reasons for that was that our both our strategy and our tactics became extremely rigid um, over a long period of time of campaigning. Uh, and we were not able to kind of make space for, for reflection and for flexibility uh, in order to build majority support right and build as as much as solidarity as we could have Um, and I think that set us back as a union and I I also think it set the broader movement back right so um, that's one kind of example I also think about when we started Reclaim um, you know we started it in the wake of uh, Bernie Sanders campaign Um, but then immediately like very soon after that the pandemic started well no the pandemic had already been happening Um, but then um, the, the the George Floyd uprising started soon after we started this organization. And I remember like we literally had a like a, a tax the rich. Our
0: first, Our first protest
1: was planned on a day when there was a spontaneous march, uh, Black Lives Matter march, like across Providence. And so we were out there with these tax the rich signs and then like converged with this Movement for Black Lives protest, we were like, we should probably just go to that protest, right? Um, And so we had to like really rethink like what it meant to be organizing in that moment and um, what the relevant kind of um, skills were to be developing at that time. The other thing I wanted to say on the question of strategy is that I always think that it's a tragedy that we live such short lives and, you know, in the course of our lives, like, we might be able to participate, if we're lucky, in, like, one or two, like, real mass movements, um, and then they will they will die, right, inevitably. And, and then we'll be left thinking about, like, well, why did it die? Like, what did we do wrong? What could we have done better, right? And we'll reach some conclusions on the basis of our partial experience. Um, but that's why I think it's Like, actually, you know, most of the strategy that I have developed, like, in my limited organizing experience has been actually, you know, quite small scale. Like, it's been about people, like, how do you build and sustain political relationships? Like, how how do you, like, structure an organization in a way that works for what you're trying to accomplish? and less about the theory as Gabe the said, of like how the world works because in some for the kinds of organizing I've done I don't know that I get enough data back about like the big picture, you know okay. and so that's why I feel like reading history is actually kind of like the the most important way for for trying to learn from past generations and trying to figure out like what has worked when and why and trying to like then not just replicate the past but try to think about what are the conditions in place now and what might be possible in this moment and what kinds of organizations should we build to meet the moment and be able to interact with it.
3: Okay, that tees up very well what I was gonna say. Thanks, Mia. Um, So, um, you know, uh, I think both in terms of the question of ability to learn from the past and also the question of ability to adapt to strategic opportunities and setbacks, this question of, um, I guess, intergenerational, um, intergenerational transmission Mm -hmm. of lessons and also the the limits and problems of of the attempt to transmit lessons intergenerationally has come to seem more and more important to me in a variety of labor movement contexts, which is really the context I think most about, both in my own experience and thinking historically. Um, And I was going to talk a bit about uh, a version of the same experience Mia was describing in graduate school. Which we were on different sides of struggles in at the time, although I think I would now completely share your analysis of it. Um, and um, you know, I think like the way I thought about uh, the defeat that she was describing, and I've spent as you both have a ton of time reflecting on it. It like takes me back to the 1930s and 40s in a certain way. So we both went to graduate school at Yale. We were in New Haven. New Haven was an industrial town, you know, great migration destination, uh, big factory, you know, weapons manufacturing factories. Um, And there was a CIO union, Blue Collar Union, organized at Yale University in the 30s. Um, And then over the course of the 50s and 60s and 70s, as industrial work kind of was fading away and the university was emerging as the dominant employer and this uh, Blue Collar Union at the university was becoming increasingly isolated. They made a decision to try to organize the so-called pink-collar workers, the clerical and technical workers, on campus, which is unusual that you would have these two groups both affiliated with the same union, which at that time was H-E-R-E. And that was a brutal, long campaign. They won their NLRB election in 1983 by, I think, do you remember the number, eight votes, something like that? Um, They fought for, you know, 18 months for a contract, but they won. And then when graduate Mm -hmm. students started organizing, eventually the organization we would both be part of, uh, they also joined that union, uh, And that was a kind of cool thing about being at that university. It was one of the reasons I wanted to be at that university was that wall to wall, you know, was all, all an HERE shop from the custodial workers to the secretaries, the librarians, to lab techs, to graduate students. Um, and, you know, in some ways, that was a defensive response, I think, in retrospect, looking at it sociologically, a defensive response to the company town structure of the community, right, that there was essentially one massive capitalist in this community. And if workers allow themselves to be divided, uh, then they, they, they have got no prayer. Um, and it was one of the most exciting things about organizing in that union, from my perspective also, is that uh, it raised the bar, for a graduate worker in particular, it raised the bar of what, what it meant to join, right, because joining meant taking a position in this 70-year running struggle uh, that polarizes the entire community at some level, the entire town at some level, on class lines in a certain way. And it meant a decision for like, you know, an astronomer or whatever, uh, to decide to have more in common with the person who cleans their office at some level than, you know, their faculty advisor, this kind of thing. And that was an amazing thing to try to kind of get people to work through. At the same time, there are huge difficulties in actually holding together a group of 7,000 people, you know, across such a wide range. And uh, one thing that it meant was that our organization uh, was strategically and tactically, as Mia said, extremely rigid. And I can't tell you how many times I did this crazy thing where someone was like, have a totally reasonable idea, why don't we try this? And I would say, no, 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 we can't do that. I'll tell you why. We tried that in 73. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I was born in 1986. (laughs) Um, But really, I had conversations like that all the time because there was this huge accumulated history, which I related to as an asset, and in many ways was an asset. Uh, But it wasn't only an asset. Um, It was also this immense burden. Um, And similarly, um, the organization was very undemocratic, because, uh, I mean, it was nominally democratic in various ways, but functionally it was very undemocratic, because, uh, you know, in a kind of, like, basically, not, not officially, and most people wouldn't endorse this description, but in a basically democratic, centralist way, like there were these different groups uh, that were federated together, uh, each of which was kind of po- always pulling in somewhat different directions. And so there was a center that just kind of decided and then tried to persuade everyone else. Um, and, you know, I don't think that's necessarily in principle always bad or something like that. I mean, it's appropriate to like have a diversity of ways of thinking about these questions. But, you know, the objection was always being raised uh, that, like, why are we doing this? This is why I didn't have any input into this approach. And I would say, well, yeah, because it's, you know, this sort of strategic direction that makes sense for this coalition as a whole, that you decided you want to be in with the person who cleans your office. So of course you're not in charge of it, which again, kind of makes sense. And also puts an organizer in the position of telling people, you don't get a say, which is like not a great position to be <laughs> in, right? Um, and, uh, you know, I think that that process, although I'm tremendously proud of it, and I, you know, I think like the thing that I look back on it and think in retrospect is the way that the kind of historical momentum or not momentum, the kind of historical inertia is a better word for it, of decades of struggle, the way it lays down these deposits historically that we then kind of get stuck in in some way, right? That we have to navigate our way through and uh, the balancing act of extracting kind of usable experience and power also that's been accumulated organizationally, extracting that without um, simply trying to kind of replicate it over and over again. Uh, was, you know, wrenching enough to destroy our organization at that moment, although it's come back since then. Um, and, you know, that brings me to a kind of larger labor movement point I wanted to make, um, or something I've been thinking a lot about, in particular since the kind of debacle in 2020 of the Culinary Union in Nevada, um, like trying to sink Bernie in the Nevada caucuses without admitting that they were doing that. I'm sure everyone who remembers this, right, they kind of like did these fake grassroots actions against of their members against Bernie over health care. Um, where, like, workers in the culinary union who work in the casinos in Vegas would, like, show up during events and, and like, protest, like, union health care because the really good health cl- plan would be obviated by Medicare for All. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that it's like, a, I don't have a pat analysis or answer to this, but I think it's a question that we've just not done nearly enough to think about of how to relate to... Not just the legacies of defeat in the labor movement and in the socialist movement more generally, which we think about and talk about all the time, but the partial victories and the way the partial victories continue to hang over our head in the form of formations that we have to defend at all costs um, and turn our kind of organizational inheritances into these immense burdens. Um, And that, I think, is something that's very difficult to know how to navigate. It's not a story of like a lesson I've learned. It's something that I think we need to grapple much more with. So on that note, I'm going to move us on to the next question, unless anyone wants to respond to that. So next, I wanted to talk about the micro scale. Um, and I'm curious about examples you all would provide of how uh, either more theoretical orientation or even the kind of power analysis that the organization might be operating with shapes organizing like in its like molecular dimensions. Um, what you say, what your rap is in an organizing conversation, um, how you structure meetings and what you say in meetings, and how, what you think is a good meeting and a bad meeting uh how to train organizing cadre how to build organizational structure and like what what should act the actual form of our of our organization be The really nitty-gritty stuff and um i'm curious i guess how you see this this varying uh or staying the same across the kind of larger strategic or theoretical orientations which i think is close to the spirit of that
2: question <laughs> Thank you thank you for the question from the floor and also for your own question um i wanted to continue a little bit to think about what it means to organize an industrial higher education union by talking about some of the granular questions because i think in contrast to the history that gabe was telling we didn't have the weight of these previous victories weighing on us it was about trying to build an industrial coalition that worked prehistories and connections, but they were largely transactional and rooted more in electoral politics than the kind of industrial coalition that we wanted to create, which was really trying to think about why it matters to coordinate all the union contracts within the coalition. Because at one point, Rutgers has 100,000 people total, 50,000 undergraduates, I think 20,000 graduate students and 30,000 workers, and three different campuses. and the main, I hate to use that language because that is a core part of what our fight is, but the majority of students and workers are in New Brunswick. That's almost 80%. And then Newark and Camden. So to create an industrial coalition, it really required um, enormous amounts of labor and emotional labor pushing against a long history of the tenure track faculty who are unionized um, having the most job security and higher pay. I want to be careful about this because the kind of PMC analysis of this is very problematic because the real money that's being spent in Rutgers is being spent by the metastasization of our administration. So you might think of Rutgers as a place where the undergraduates are not union. Some of the IT workers are not union, but all the other workers are. But we have this huge metastasized class of administrators. So the first thing is, in order to do this, it required enormous work talking to individual union leaders and figuring out what their biggest concerns were and being willing to take and to sacrifice by the higher paid workers. That was the core strategy. The way that we used it to message and do political education was to protect the most vulnerable, but it was really a strategy where using tenure, not for academic freedom, although of course that's important, but using tenure as a way to fight battles because we have permanent jobs. And so how did that work? First, it required um, really a strategic communication. How do we get our membership to care about these issues? Because in many ways, our union's transformation is a story, really, of a small group of very committed leftists getting involved in the union leadership, doing enormous amounts of work, recruiting people, both staff and other members, and churning the union. It didn't come from grassroots. So one of our goals was to figure out how to lead and how to lead our membership, which in some ways, this is not how they envisioned originally uh, a faculty grad union so that coordination of contracts using town halls and choosing people who had lost their jobs from all over the union especially the the dining hall workers and using these town halls in order to to really uh, demonstrate and get other people on board to identify with their struggles through solidarity the internal piece of this is really important because we have multiple job categories within the faculty grad union so we have tenure-track faculty, we have contingent lecturers, we have graduate students and postdocs, and all of those have different pay and different profiles of their jobs. One of the the big nitty-gritty things that we did after this coalition was created was to rewrite our bylaws, and in the bylaws rewrite, we reorganized them so that each job category would have its own representation. So we created a vice president for tenure track, vice president for graduate students, vice president for uh, all the other job categories. Now, this speaks to maybe a question of division. Um, and I think Gabe's academic work has been very helpful in thinking about this, which is the different kinds of intellect, the intellectual heterodoxy or the left heterodoxy within the union. So we have a group of us who I've described as being kind of cold War leftists we come out of an earlier generation, we're we're very comfortable with party formation and cadre formation, we think of it in those terms, versus a kind of more horizontalist tradition in which process is essential and prefigured of politics, in which politics is the actual process of deciding. And there is a real, there is a tension within our union, and it breaks down along age lines, I think, most immediately and that's something that requires a larger conversation but it's complex because there are also job category differences so i i'd say because i always like to just speak plainly there's some tension between the tt faculty and the grads and it has to do part of it has to do with different visions of organizing now of course there are tt faculty they're horizontalists and there are grads that are you know comfortable with the kind of cadre-based organization but i'd say that has been one of the biggest issues and it remains a big issue um, The changing of the bylaws and creating vice presidents, this is a good example of how we can create a split between different groups of the union. Because look at from the point of view of a kind of culture of participation and radical democracy, this sounds terrible, right? It sounds like, oh my gosh, we're creating these new categories of people who are going to, we're strengthening the hierarchy, right? The whole point is to have a horizontal hierarchy. Now, from the point of view of those of us who wanted to do this, we did it in order to raise up and strengthen the more vulnerable job categories. And that required changing the structure of the organization, because from 1970 until today, they're always been led by tenure track faculty with no Inst- institutional and structural representation of other job categories but i thought that would be a good uh contra- a good concrete example of the differences between long-term goal versus process the second quick thing i would say that really into the union coalition was work share so during the pandemic the government was giving money for people kind of modeled on um german system for people to remain in their positions uh, versus becoming unemployed and at that point no one had used this except the los angeles times so our union decided to partner with the federal government on a workshare program in which the, the tenure track faculty um, full-time faculty took voluntary furloughs and the money that was saved this was put towards fighting for grad extension which we won without a strike and preventing the layoff of any workers until January 2022 so that they could retain their uh, health insurance most importantly during the pandemic and also their children's tuition so in addition to a kind of language of solidarity we did it really through a core economic solidarity which is taking furloughs working with the federal government and using that as leverage to prevent layoffs
4: thanks um, that's, that's fascinating and like it, i need to read more about learn a lot more about workers organizing uh, it's
2: really about this.
4: um i i sort of thinking about it the the other the other way around, less in terms of how my like theoretical approach shapes my organizing and more how my, like my organizing shapes my theoretical approach, which then shapes my approach to organizing. Because often rather than my like, big theoretical question, like my organizing questions are so mundane, it's like how can I get people to ghost less or to like, you know, like <laughs> canvas <campus> more often. <laughs> yeah. um, and um, I think that um for organizing that's oriented towards some sort of mass politics, which means just like not the sort of organizing that's insularly leftist, where you're only interacting with other socialists in a socialist organization or other leftists, whatever sort of left organization, but where you're relating to some, you know, representative portion of the vast majorities of the people that we want to organize, to build the power that we need to transform society that one learns a whole lot about what actual present conditions are not what our fantasy of present conditions are but what they actually are which can both be kind of a somewhat depressing reality check or sometimes kind of exciting interesting or sometimes a mixture of of both um but you know if you're in a theoretical bubble, either because you're in a sort of like sectarian, small organization, or like rather differently but kind of the same for the argument that I'm making here, or if you're a leftist academic who doesn't do any organizing at all, in either case you can be led to incredibly off-base analyses of what present conditions are and thus have a theory of change that's not actually suited to engaging with those present conditions to transform them. Um, so that's just briefly the way the way that I was thinking about it. Because I, I I don't know I don't know that necessarily. Like I'm sure that all of the histories I read and all the theory I read makes me a better organizer. But I think overall my my organizing works makes me a better theorist and thinker and intellectual, which then then in turn makes me a better organizer. Mm-hmm.
1: So I think the, when you were asking about the, the 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 way that our theories are reflected in the in our in the micro level um, practices of organizing, um, what I what I went to is um, a difference like a strategic difference that I see um, his, it, historically in in different approaches to um, to organizing, but also you know it comes up all the time in our in our practice, which is. The kind of distinction between um, like ident- leadership identification and recruitment and leadership development, right? Um, and uh, you know, a lot of people, most people, try to do all do all of those things together. Um, but uh, I think there are differences in emphasis that that different organizations and and organizers place on those two things. And I think on the question of um, and of leadership development, people also have different answers to the, the question of why, right? Like, why to engage in leadership development, right? Um, and for example, I see this um, in when I've studied um, organizers like um, like William Z. Foster, for example, in the 1930s, was someone who was very focused on. Um, on identifying and recruiting leaders like indigenous leaders or people who already had relationships within the workplace um, and to some extent on development um, but for very strategic and instrumental reasons um, whereas someone like Ella Baker who I've also studied and written about um, kind of was very focused on both on identifying, recruiting, and developing leaders, um, and, and but for uh, because the, her her in, her interest was both strategic and um, ethical, or like deeply humanistic, right? So there was this kind of like underlying humanism to her theory of organizing, um, and by humanism I mean you know a, a belief that all humans are. Infinitely valuable and have um, capacities for self-governance and self-determination, and that um, part of the purpose of organizing is to develop those capacities, right, in people who who haven't, um, you know, haven't haven't had opportunities to exercise or develop them in other parts of their lives. Um, and the more I, um, the more that I organize in different contexts, the more I kind of see that those. that question coming up again and again sort of like if we are interested in developing leaders not just in figuring out who the existing leaders are and identifying and recruiting them um, what is it that's grounding that question and I think it's a crucial um, a crucial question to ask because um, because I think that um, it like in my own, my own answer to it is that I think a kind of humanism, whether that's based, you know, whether it's like a secular humanism or a Christian, Christianity inflected humanism, um, like Baker's, um, I think is crucial, actually, to, uh, to, to the, your question, right? The question about like how to do multiracial organizing, how to do organizing that crosses segments of the working class, um, how to Um, you know, engage with people um, who come to organizing with very different levels of um, power and um, experience, you know, being treated as like self-determining or self-governing agents and political actors, right? Um, And I think that having kind of some kind of, some version of like a humanism undergirding your approach to leadership development, can check against forms of, I think, uh, domination and elitism and racism and classism that um, inevitably find their ways into our practices of organizing because we live in a deeply racist and classist um, society. So that's something that I think about a lot on the micro level and, you know, it relates a little bit to um, something that um, Alyssa Battistoni, you know, she wrote this essay about, about organizing an N plus one, um, and, and one of the themes of the essay is thinking about the, pers- the what's particular about the kinds of relationships that we form through organizing, um, what distinguishes them from friendships, for example, um, something Jody Dean has written about as well in her book Comrade, uh, and one of the things that Alyssa and Jody both identify as particular about polit- organizing relationships is their instrumentality, right? that they, we are using each other to do something that we couldn't do by ourselves, right? The, re, the organization is a set of relationships that we are just building and maintaining in order to be able to, to act as a collective agent, right? So they are instrumental um, relationships, but but I I also think that, that we have to relate to people simultaneously as Ends in themselves, right? In our in our organizing, um, and I think that that's true for ethical reasons. But I I think it's also true for strategic reasons. Like I think we run into huge problems um, when we um, when we come to think of each other only as means or only as kind of tools towards whatever our um, our goals, are, our organizational goals are. So that's something I've been thinking about, and
3: would love to hear other people's thoughts on. Uh. Thanks, Mia. So, I'm going to talk a little bit about this, and then I think we're going to go to a more general discussion time um, for the rest of the session. So, um, you know, one thing that I really uh, took me a long time to, I guess, grasp and continue continue to be grappling with in some ways, going right off of what Mia was saying, is the ways that um, successful organizing, at least over any sustained period uh, within which relationships can emerge and stabilize or develop, um requires self transformation in a whole variety of forms. Um, and not I mean that can take the form of like, yes, I have to be more disciplined so that I like meet all of my you know check all of my boxes for every day. Or that's you know potentially a version of it. Uh, that's certainly a form of self transformation that many organizations have often emphasized. But um I think I, I think beyond that though, or you know, besides that, um, there is a way in which I think though the transcendence of the particular kind of uh, the, the most brutal kind of instrumentalization that Mia is talking about only becomes possible when you can communicate to the people with whom you're trying to build that you're willing to be changed by them if they're if they're willing to come along with you, right? And. That is like a really, really hard thing to communicate because you might say it and you might mean it and it still might not really be true at some level because you don't really know how far you'll go. You don't really know what it's going to take. You don't really know how hard it's going to get. You don't really know. You can't know about each other exactly how far you'll go together, right? Um, and it's necessarily a process of develop, like an iterative process of development over time, like all relationships, like real meaningful human relationships are. Um, and I think that's what's powerful about collective action obviously is that it opens the door to that kind of question uh it forces us to ask it about ourselves and each other and the relationships that we might have uh, or might be able to have um uh, but it's also so hard to answer because of its like fundamental uncertainty which is the uncertainty of all collective action right like it's the reason that it's possible for anti-union campaigns to work just for one example right it's not that the people who signed cards in the first place were lying when you know you File for an NLRB election at sixty five percent and then lose. It's not that the fifteen percent you lost were lying when they signed. It's that the quality of the relationship that bound that fifteen percent to the other fifty percent uh, was you know it it wasn't quite deep enough in one way or another, right? Um, and uh, something about the kind of question that we're always asking of how far would we go together how how much would I be willing to, live my life differently, do things I didn't plan on doing, take risks I didn't plan on, on taking, be connected to people I certainly didn't plan on being connected to, which I think is the kind of organizational answer at some level to the kind of questions of race and gender and sexuality and division that your question was getting at as well. Um, all of those questions can't be answered in advance and can't be, can't be answered in, in the abstract at all, really. I mean, you can think a certain thing about yourself, right, and then, and then put it to the test and again and again and again. Uh, and I don't really know. I mean, I think it's like, in some ways, one of the, the the giant unanswerable questions of like organizational form and strategy of how to build organizations that make it possible for people to do that. That again, hold open the door for people to build those kinds of relationships. But we can't drag each other into them, right? Like it's that that introduces, as Mia is saying, that introduces the element of instrumentality. That causes people to be not on the same page with one another about how far you would really go. Um, And I, I, you know, um, I I wish I had a better answer to to what the form is that that could correspond to that. (laughs) I just want to say a quick word, kind of related to that, about my experience this past year of organizing with the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee, which has been a really fantastic. Thing. I really urge everyone who has a little time on your hands and wants to, you know, contribute more to the workers' movement to get involved in EWOC, uh, but one of the things that's amazing about it, for folks who don't know, it's basically a DSA and UE project, it's like a workers organizing help desk, more or less. People, you know, have a fight that they ha- are in or want to have at their workplace, it might be their wages are getting stolen, it might be they want to form a union, it might be they're getting sexually harassed, it could be anything. They, they, usually it's one person or maybe two people at a job, they contact EWOC, someone gets kind of assigned to their case to work with them on whatever effect they want to have. Uh, so I've been doing this since January, and uh, it found it very meaningful. And it's uh, strange in a certain way compared to all other kinds of, certainly workplace organizing I've done, in as much as I don't need anything. From these workers, and that's like a really weird experience. And there are good reasons that workplace organizers should need things from the, people, the workers they're organizing, right? Like the union movement generates its own funding out of dues that it collects from its own members, so it's not dependent on like nonprofits, and that's good, right? Um, but that redounds into uh, organizers often having to like, you know, make sure the membership is growing by a certain percentage every year, which filters down to making sure that you mem- you know you're organizing accomplishes XYZ things, which means, necessarily, that your relationships can't develop according to their own logic fully, right? You sometimes have to kind of jam them to force them through, to speed them up. And again, I don't think that's always necessarily wrong to do, Um, although it creates damage when you do it. Um, And in Ewok, the amazing thing is, like, you just don't need anything. None of us need anything from the workers we're organizing. Um, And while that, I think, has real strategic problems for Ewok as a whole, that we can't we have no initiative, right? We, we're it's, it's kind of passive at some level. People come to us. Um, we can't project organization outward or forward. Um, but at the same time, it does allow this amazing thing in organizing conversations where, you know, you talk like a worker, you know, wants to talk and you hear them out and you say, well, you know, here's sort of how that seems to me. What do you think You kind of go back and forth, trying to understand the situation. And then at every point in the conversation, every EWOC conversation I've had, I find there's a moment where I just want to say like, okay, so what do you want to do? and you know i was always taught to do that also doing other kinds of more traditional workplace organizing to put the person on the hook as we would say um but i always there's always an answer i wanted right um and in eloc there's i mean you know i want people to fight i want people to win but there's not a particular path i need them to take uh and i don't again i don't have a strategic generalization from that point but i found it like unbelievable the difference it makes it just in an organizing conversation to ask what do you wanna do when you don't have something in mind in particular compared to when you do. The amount of power that the other person is able to take from that conversation is like astounding. It's the same words that I've said a million other times. Um, And I think that, I mean, for me, that's gonna be a real subject of reflection going forward and I hope it will in eWatch in general.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.